0: us. So, Bob, would you come? Let's stand together. We're going to read Mark chapter um, 15, beginning at verse 22, through um, chapter 16 and verse 8.
1: And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Aloe Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already be dead. And summoned... Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he heard from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. You may be seated.
0: <clears throat> this past Christmas was, uh, for our family, spent at my uh, brother and sister in law's home. That would be Alex and Sarah. And our family, usually, when we get together, there's a whole slew of us, maybe 25 to 30 people gathered together. And um, it, was a, it was a fun day, but one of the, the sad parts of the day was that my son, Gavin, Um, who was in the Marines at that point in time at the School of Infantry, um, wasn't able to be with us. And we, as a family, um, uh, were going to plan on going down to visit with him the following day. We were excited about celebrating Christmas, but then going down to San Diego and connecting with him. And he had told us that the reason that he couldn't get back was because uh, you, you couldn't travel beyond 500 miles from the place where you were. They wouldn't allow it. And uh, so we settled, and we had a plan, and we were going to go down and visit with him and celebrate that week. And we're enjoying our Christmas day, having fun. The presents were opened, and food had been served. And I was in the family room, and lo and behold, my son Gavin walks in the house. And um, he walks in, and everyone starts screaming. And I remember he went up to my wife and said, hi, Mom. And she began to scream and cry, and I think even beat him, I think, was one of the things that was happening. Um, but w- there was great celebration that day because there was a surprise. We weren't expecting it. It was, it was not planned. It was a total, uh, a total manipulation of people that are in this auditorium here today who were part of that plan and my son lying to his father and things like that. But we soon forgave him for that um, because it was a pleasant surprise. And friends, life is full of surprises, is it not? Some are good. Uh, some are not so good. The point of a surprise is that you are not ready or expecting it to happen. That's what a surprise is. And that is what we find as we read the passion accounts in all of the Gospels. They are so full of surprises. When I say the passion accounts, we just read a passion account. The, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And in Those accounts, in all the Gospels, there are incredible surprises. So let's just kind of walk through a few of them, just from all of the the accounts here. I just want to remind you of some of the surprises uh, relating to the resurrection and the Passion Week. Um, Here's one, uh, and that is Simon of Cyrene, conscripted to carry the cross of Jesus. Minding his own business, watching the Savior come through the streets of Jerusalem, and one of the soldiers pulls him in and says, you carry the cross. It's kind of a surprise there, I mean, especially if you're Simon, right? I mean, here's this character, here's this guy who's now part of the story. For for over 2,000 years now, his name is connected with this Passion Week for no other reason than he carried the cross. Then there is the the thief on the cross. We don't know his name, but we know that there was interaction between the two thieves beside Jesus, Right? And we're surprised that even in the interaction that Jesus says to that thief, what? Today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, it's just like, wow, that's incredible. How about the the three hours of darkness in the middle of the day? There was three hours when people came and mocked Jesus. And then for three hours, there was utter darkness. It wasn't because it was late at night. It was in the middle of the day. Total surprise. All of Jerusalem must have been thinking, What is going on? Total surprise. Then, of course, there's an earthquake that happens. When Jesus breathes his last, there's an earthquake that takes place. So they, they felt this. They have been experiencing darkness. Now there's an earthquake. We're also told that the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, certainly, that was not an eyewitness account of the centurion at that point in time, but the writers add that in as one of the events that took place during that time. What a surprise. Then, Mark chapter 15. You have your Bibles there in Mark chapter 15 uh, and 16. So look at Mark chapter 15 and notice the centurion's words. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, talking about Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I want you to focus in on, though, this section where he says, saw that in this way. In this way he breathed his last. There was something different about Jesus. The centurion was the guy who was in charge of the whole process of all these people being crucified. Probably had done it day after day. And his responsibility was up that day. And he would certainly experienced people being crucified and all the stuff that came around it. But there was something different about this man Jesus and how he died. There's a surprise because you're not expecting the centurion to say, truly, this man was the son of God. Then there is the presence and the participation of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. I mean, Out of nowhere, these guys come on the scene. And Joseph of Arimathea is providing a tomb. And Nicodemus comes, and he actually anoints the body. So John chapter 19, you want to turn there. John chapter 19, I think it's worth us uh, focusing just a little bit here as we prepare. John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 27 pounds in weight. The point here is this. Here are highly respectable individuals in Jerusalem, in religious society, that are now coming and attending the body of Jesus. One of them giving his family tomb as the place where Jesus could be buried. Now, friends, these are things that we, we know because we know the story, but these are surprises in the story. These are unexpected things. But, friends, I think there's one surprise in this, this uh, resurrection story, uh, which is going to be our focus today, that, that I think is really a blessing, and that is the surprise of the, the women who followed Jesus during the course of his ministry. They're witness of all of these events. Now, they're recorded in each of the Gospels. Now, we see them periodically through the Gospels involved in various kinds of things. Sometimes they're, they're cooking food. Sometimes they're worshiping at Jesus' feet, but the, the picture and the perspective that we get of these ladies is that they are, in a sense, working behind the scenes, supporting and, and encouraging and helping the ministry of de- Jesus. And, and what we find in these accounts is not just the fact that they're women, but what kind of women they are who are following Jesus. They're loving, they're devoted, they're servants, and they're followers of Jesus. And in these passion accounts, in particular in Mark's gospel, they are given a prominent seat in the details of the story. So the witness of the women. They they are witnesses, first of all, at the crucifixion. They're there, standing, looking, and watching. Look at chapter 15 and verse 40 and following. There were also women looking on from a distance, among them whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, friends, there's a little window of understanding here that there were Along with the disciples and Jesus, women who went along in, might want to say, in the entourage of things. Certainly, Jesus spent time alone with his disciples, but there were women along the way at times that were there to help and to undergird and support them. It's a wonderful insight here. So there were these female followers and supporters of Jesus who were at the crucifixion. Secondly, they were at his burial. Look at chapter 15 verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. They watched it happen. They saw his body be taken into the tomb. And then, of course, we see them at the empty tomb, after his resurrection at the empty tomb, and that really is our text. Look at verse 1. When the sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now, friends, what is striking here about the fact that these women are present in each event is this. It's striking because they are witnesses. And Mark is holding them up as key and vital witnesses to the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection account in Mark's gospel is only seen through the eyes of these women. Now, what is so significant about that? Well, what's significant about that is this, is that in the culture of that day, the testimony of women had no foundation or support in the court of law. You could have 50 women who said, we saw this, and it wouldn't stand up. It was inadmissible evidence. And so, friends, there's a sense in which this is clear evidence that If someone were trying to fabricate the story of Jesus, his death, his burial, and resurrection, they would not use women as witnesses because it wouldn't hold up. They would craft witnesses that would stand up, that would be legal, that would be viable, but not here because this is what actually happened. They're eyewitnesses of what took place even though their witness in that culture would not stand in a court of law. But regardless of those cultural norms, they were eyewitnesses of these events, and it is their story that Mark chooses to focus on as he describes the finding of the empty tomb. And on this day, Resurrection Sunday, their story will be told again and again and again. For over 2,000 years, their story has been told. They are silent witnesses of the resurrection. And in Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, which is our text for today, we will see their love, alarm, and fear fully on display so that we can see, feel, and experience, and I use that word carefully, the full impact of the power of God through his resurrection. So let's just pause for a moment and ask God to give us strength and to to allow us to learn and be teachable from this passage of Scripture. Lord, today, would you speak to us through, uh, Lord, your messenger. Lord, may anything that I say only be a reflection, Lord, of what it is that you desire to say through your word. Allow your Holy Spirit freedom, Lord. Give us clarity. Give us an understanding, Lord, of what this resurrection is about. And, Lord, may we be able to see it through the lens, Lord, of these women and be strengthened and encouraged and celebrate, Lord, your resurrection. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. The first thing I would like to say is this. One of the things we find with these ladies about the resurrection is that they are compelled by love. They're compelled by love to go to the tomb. Now, you may see as you're driving down the road, you may see periodically places where flowers are left, Maybe a cross is left on the side of a freeway. And just like parents who would travel four hours, eight hours to a location where their son died in a car accident to lay flowers and to say one more time, I miss you, I love you. These women now who had been ministering with Jesus, following him and looking on from a distance, they come with a devotion of love. They come to do something to Jesus in that tomb that is born out of love. Their love compels them to respond to his death in an amazing way. And we're going to see three ways in particular. And they're they're very simple. They're right there in the text. First of all, their their love compels them to, to buy spices. You say, well, what's so big of a deal as far as that is concerned. Well, look at verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought a uh, bot spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now, the interesting thing that we have to understand here is it says, when the Sabbath was passed, at what time does the Sabbath end? Usually around 5 o'clock or so. So there's a window of opportunity after 5 and before it gets dark when maybe a vendor is going to have some spices for burial available. They have to go out and they got to get these things. they got to go out and buy these spices for burial. And what I'd like to say is this. It is, first of all, a coordinated love. It's a coordinated love. Someone had to decide where they're going to get these spices from. Who's going to get what? Where are they going to get it? When are they going to get it? There's a s- small window of opportunity. It was a costly love, secondly. They were not anointing with spices that they already had on hand or in reserve. Remember the alabaster box that was broken and poured over Jesus, right? That happened earlier in the home of Lazarus. Here, though, we don't have something that was held in reserve for a long time. Here, we have an an immediate purchase. That means that likely they paid top denarii for this. It's kind of like saying, hey, I need some eggs. I need some milk. Can you run down to the Bonfair market for me? And you know you're going to pay through the nose if you go to that convenience store, right? So all of a sudden, bam, we need spices. Go out and buy them. You're paying top dollar for this stuff. There was a sacrifice there. It was costly. It was a caring love. Jesus' body, get this, had already been anointed by Joseph and Nicodemus. There's a sense in which you can say, ah, they already did it. We don't need to. It's not the fact that they needed to. It's the fact that they wanted to. That's why if someone passes away and you're going to be going to a funeral and you say, well, someone else is going to buy flowers. I don't need to. No, you buy flowers because you care about that person. And you want to show respect for that person. So you buy flowers and you get there. And all these flowers are there. Why? It's a demonstration of your love and care for that individual and for the family of that individual. So the fact that he had already been anointed wasn't hindering them from going. In fact, they just simply wanted to go for themselves to express their care and their love for him. It was also a courageous love. If you notice in the passage we read there, that Joseph of Arimathea went with courage to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And if it took courage for him to go do that, certainly for these ladies to go and to be seen by soldiers and to be associated with Jesus would take courage. And their love fueled them to go and do that. It would be risky to be seen interacting here with the body of Jesus. So their love compelled them to buy these spices. It was, it was all born out of love. But their love also, um, I would say, is this, um, compelled them to get up early. Now, I realize this morning you probably laid in bed and said, I don't want to get up, right? Anyone feel that way this morning? Oh, see, you're not being honest with me, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a guy that, it was a Sunday morning, the guy rolls over his wife and says, I'm just, I'm tired. I don't want to get up. I don't I don't want to go to church. And the wife leans over and says, you have to. You're the pastor, right? You know, so the reality is, you know, we're, we're, all, we're not immune to not wanting to get up. And there's something, though, about saying, you know what, I'm getting up for something that has nothing to do with me. It has to do with someone else. And because of my love for someone else, I'm willing to get up and make the journey and go Okay, you say, oh, that's kind of, you know, there's not too much about that. No, I think there is something about that. Look at verse 2. And very early, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Where have they been the night before? They've been out buying spices. They go home, they get it all prepared. All right, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to, you know, anoint with this, anoint him with this. are getting all together. Okay, let's go to bed in the morning. Let's get up really early so we can get there just at the right time. I mean, there was, there was planning going on here. It wasn't like, well, let's see. we got this to do tomorrow, this to do tomorrow, this to do Let me open my Palm Pilot here because it's an old thing, right? My iPhone and see what we have scheduled for the day. No, this was the event of the day. This is what this day was about. It was to go to the tomb and to anoint the body of Jesus. And so I'm saying this, that their love here is demonstrated by being devoted, being diligent, and being deliberate in their act. It was the only plan of the day. The third thing here is this. Their love compels them in spite of obstacles. Isn't it interesting that as they are going, here is what they're saying, verse 3. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I mean, it's a little humorous to read that, isn't it? I mean, they're going out, they're buying spices, they're getting up early. Oh, yeah, and by the way, how are we going to get in? But in spite of that obstacle, they're still walking. They're not stopping and saying, oh, we're idiots. Let's just go home. We can't get in. They weren't going to be deterred. Verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Surprise. It was a determined love. Now, friends, I think in summary we could say that the love that compelled these women was a selfless love. These women loved Jesus when they didn't think that they would get anything from him. It wasn't like they were going to go and anoint his body and say, okay, now give us something back. They're going to anoint his body because they were compelled by love to do that. It was a selfless act. And all of these things that they're doing that we could say are expressions of love ultimately are selfless expressions. They knew he was dead. They came to serve him, not to be served by him. They didn't come to get blessings, but to express love as a true follower of Jesus. And friends, true followers love him, not just the things we get from him. Real Christians don't love Jesus because of the blessings he gives, There are many, of course, but because we love him. And, friends, the question for us today is this: first of all, do you love him? Or are you simply looking for stuff from him? If we only love Jesus for the things he will give us, we have become mercenaries. We're being paid to do certain things. I'll do this if you give me something at the end. That's being a mercenary. We follow him simply because we love him. We're not following him because we think that somehow by following him and doing X, Y, and Z, there's going to be more of something for us. Friends, there's a distorted understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ, a child of God. When we are regenerated, reconciled to God through Christ's death on the cross, we are ushered into a new family and a new citizenship an inheritance that can never be taken away. Everything, Scripture says, everything you need for life and godliness is given to you by God. Everything. At that point of salvation, you have been given everything you need to live your life for the glory of God. Secondly, all the promises that are connected with becoming a new creature, creating Christ Jesus, will be realized once you step from this life into heaven. So there's no need and hear this there's no need for any of us to try and impress God by our works. Like these ladies were coming to the tomb, you know, saying, "Oh God, I want you to see how great we are and how much we love your son because we want to somehow gain greater favor with you." That's trying to use your works Somehow impress God. You and I don't need to impress God. We can't impress God. But sadly, there are distorted views out there that say, hey, if I do this, God's going to be happy and somehow I'm going to get more grace or I'm going to get more blessing and so I'm going to continue doing this and I'm doing it because there's payday at the end. Friend, payday happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you embraced him as your Lord and Savior. Everything that you were Promised was ushered to you at that point in time, whether it's for now or you will ultimately get it as your inheritance in heaven. You cannot gain more grace by doing more good works. Why do you do good works? Simply because you love Jesus. Simply because you adore worshiping and honoring the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's not because you're looking for more stuff from him. You're looking to be blessed by being used by him. In other words, the joy of saying, God, you're using me. You're using my weak gifts to glorify you. I celebrate that and I worship you, but not because I'm trying to get something. I've been given it all. I have it all. And friends, we, we in a sense, ignore all of that reality when we begin to try and work our way to impress God again so we serve without holding our hands open or expecting some benefit we serve simply because we love him knowing that he loves us it is their love that compelled them to come to the tomb secondly it is the alarm that unsettles them the alarm that unsettles them not alarm sense of you know all right I, we're all unsettled by alarms like that, right? And my, my spouse is more unsettled because I get up earlier and sometimes I forget to turn it off or something like that, right? And we're not talking about that kind of alarm, but we're talking about the alarm that is here in this text. These, the, the ladies were likely surprised w- that the stone had been rolled away, right? Because they're talking about it. It's like, wow, hey, this, the stone has been rolled away. Not knowing or caring how that could be, they enter into the tomb when they are... Truly alarmed. They were alarmed. Other translators, or translations I should say, use the following words for this word alarmed. Dumbfounded. You might need to add that to your vocabulary. Dumbfounded. Amazed. Deeply distressed. Troubled. Greatly troubled. It's a compound word that combines the ideas of extreme fear and agitation. And the bottom line is this, they were terrified. It's a word that means that they are just totally terrified. Why are they terrified? Why are they alarmed? It's the kind of of fear, the terror that happens when you happen upon someone when they're least expecting it. Now sometimes you can plan this out, right? Right? You can play a joke on someone and appear out of nowhere, like that, and it's like people, like, and especially with girls, they cry and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, this is one of those things that you know, young guys like do that, so that way they can get a hug and console them and that kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's all this kind of manipulative stuff going on. Uh, as you know, we you know we have we have office space now in this building over um, on Redwood Road, <coughs> and um, um, my practice is on on Saturday evenings. I go into the office and I. I think through and finalize things that I'm doing for Sunday morning, and it's my time of worship, and it's my time with God, and it's just wonderful, I've been doing it for years. Um, and my first couple of, of Saturdays there, um, I, I, I'm in my office, and there's a janitor who is there at that same time, but he didn't know I was there. And so he has his earbuds on, and you know he's kind of doing the vacuuming thing, and, and I'm walking, and I, I've got to go by him. And I'm trying my best I'm thinking, oh, man, this guy's going to freak out, you know, if I walk by him. He's, he's thinking he's alone in this place, right? You know, so I'm doing my best to kind of, you know, cough and do these things so that I can kind of alert him ahead of time. You know, I just kind of go, wah, you know. But sure enough, you know, I just say, hey, you know, whoa. And he's like, whoa. Oh, you know. And his response, fortunately, because he looked at me, he started laughing, right? I mean, it's, it's how you respond sometimes to fear and what happened. But his heart was beating. He's like, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, you scared me, you scared me, you scared me, right? there's a sense in which this is what's going on here, but it's not a humorous thing. It's a a wild panic terror. Now, why are they alarmed? They're alarmed, first of all, because of this young man. Let's read the passage here, verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, guys, can I just tell you something? When you ever walk into a tomb, and I know we do this all the time, okay? But if you walk into a tomb, it's typically dark in there, right? And if you walk into a tomb and you can tell the color of the clothes the person is wearing, um, you're a special person. This person is sitting in the tomb. They're expecting to find a body. They're expecting to find it dark, and they come in, and there's a young man, and we're told he's wearing white. The other Gospels talk about his garments being dazzling, white as snow. There's something incredible about him. It's almost like this, uh, you know, this white that glows in the dark type of thing. I mean, it's that kind of of ambiance going on here. There's something divine taking place here. You're not expecting to see someone sitting in the tomb. So you kind of go in, it's like, whoa, who is this person? Well, this person is a messenger from God, an angel of the Lord, we're told. When God breaks into mankind with his angels, man is terrified because there's a sense of the power of God that is present with those angelic beings. They are standing in the presence of God and his holiness. That's kind of what's going on. Just think of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, In verse 1 and following, he has this vision of God. And what does he say when he realizes he's in the presence of God? He says, woe is me. You have to understand that Isaiah is probably one of the most spiritual people in the country at that point in time. And in the presence of God, he says, woe is me. I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. And not only that, I'm rubbing shoulders with people who are unclean. I am not holy, you are holy. Zecharias in the, the birth of Jesus' story, in particular, he's the father of John the Baptist. An angel appears to him while he is there in the temple, and he's troubled, and fear grips him, we're told. And the angel says, hey, don't be afraid. Yeah, it's easy for you to say. And then Mary, in Luke chapter 1, and verse 29, she is greatly troubled again. So the angel says, do not be afraid. And then, of course, the shepherds minding their business, taking care of the sheep at night. All of a sudden, boom! An angel appears, and they are terrified. And the angel says, "What? Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy." So there's something about an angelic being stepping into the world and man seeing that angelic being that causes tear, or sorry, terror in the lives of those people. And so. Here we have these ladies entering the tomb, and all of a sudden, wow, they are terrified. They are alarmed. Secondly, they are alarmed at the empty tomb. Verse 6, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, guys, just want you to understand, what we have here is an articulate acknowledging of facts. Expecting to find the body of Jesus, they enter the tomb and find his body gone, so God sends a messenger to explain what this means. That's why he's there. Jesus, that is his human name, of Nazareth, the town where he was born. Again, who are we talking about here that was buried here? It's Jesus of Nazareth. Ah, who was crucified? Now this is not a case of mistaken identity at all. The angel tells us what the empty tomb means. He is risen. Now these ladies didn't see the resurrection. They come upon the tomb that is empty. And they, because of the counsel of the angel, recognize, aha, he is risen. His cold body slowly gained life. The same Jesus who was crucified rose again. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that after the angel speaks, the women remember what Jesus had said. Now, remember that the the ladies were following along with Jesus as kind of like that behind-the-scenes participants in that entourage. And certainly much of the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples they would have picked up on too. And so I think as we go through Mark's gospel, we will connect some of the things that Jesus said to his disciples to them also. So we're going to look at just three accounts of what Jesus said specifically about what he was going to do. Mark chapter 8, if you would please. Mark chapter 8, look at verse 31. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days, rise again. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples way before it's going to take place. Chapter 9, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Then Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now friends, it's very likely that that's exactly what these women were remembering. So when the angel speaks, what Jesus has said is now coming back to them. That this one that was buried, this one that came to anoint, he is not here. He is not here Um, see the place where they laid him. He's gone. Now there's three reasons why the angel's announcement is so important, so critical as it relates to the resurrection. Number one, the resurrection proved that Jesus was who he claimed to be, right? I mean, three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. And each one gives us a little bit more detail, a little bit more detail, a little bit more detail. And the detail is astounding. It's specific. It says who's going to do what and how and in what order. Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. All these things are talking about what was going to happen to the Son of Man. Secondly, the resurrection proves that we can be forgiven. That he died for our sins. Go to Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Some might say this is the key verse of the whole of Mark's gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom or a payment for many. With the resurrection, we have the confidence and the assurance that we can be forgiven because Jesus said this was going to happen, and by virtue of what did happen, he came to give his life a ransom for many. What is that ransom? It means a payment, settling a debt. The resurrection also, according to the Apostle Paul, is the guarantee of our resurrection. That there is more for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 20 says this but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep he's the first one but like him we will also follow suit we're like seeds planted that will one day <clears throat> take root okay thank you The resurrection is so important for us in understanding who Jesus is, understanding our own salvation, and understanding the certainty of our resurrection. Now, what's another reason why they're alarmed? They're alarmed because of the specific instructions that they're given. Look at verse 7. But go, go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They are given a message to deliver, specifically to the disciples, more specifically to Peter, that Jesus will be going before them to Galilee, just like Jesus had told them after the Last Supper on the Mount of Olives. Turn your Bibles now to Mark chapter 14 and verse 28. <clears throat> the angel is saying this is what Jesus has already told you. So what did Jesus already tell them? This is while they're en route to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper. Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you where? To Galilee. Now, what's going on here? The angel <clears throat> is reinforcing what Jesus already said. And here we just have a wonderful understanding and specific proof of God's sovereign purposes and complete control over the events of His death, His burial, and resurrection. Look, earlier on in Mark it says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be taken by the chief priests and scribes. They're going to mock me. They're going to turn me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be Crucified, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to, be, I'm going to rise again. And then a little later on, he says, Oh, yeah, after I rise again, I'll see you in Galilee. And what happens? The events actually take place. And the angel reminds them guess what? Jesus is going ahead to Galilee just like he said. God is sovereign, his plan is his plan and he will always work his plan perfectly. So isn't it interesting that Jesus is risen, just like he said, and a Galilean rendezvous is going to take place, just like he said. So God honors these faithful women who had served and ministered with Jesus and the disciples for a number of years to share this message with the disciples. The shocking and alarming good news that Jesus is risen and that they are to meet him in Galilee. And we must ask ourselves a few questions here. Number one, are we alarmed at the events of the Passion? We know the story we understand that Jesus was crucified. We understand that he was buried. We understand that he rose again. But does it alarm you? Do you read a passage like this? And are you, is it a part of you that's just like terrified? I mean, just fearful about the incredible awesomeness of who God is? Are we alarmed that God does what he says and that he will always do what he says? He keeps his word. Are we alarmed? that we have been given the message of good news. Well, these ladies were given the message of good news about the resurrection, but listen, if you're a child of God, you have been given the message of good news to proclaim. And do we understand the powerful nature of that good news and the impact of that good news? What impact did that good news have on the history of the world? Twelve men. With the message of the resurrected Jesus begin to proclaim the gospel? That Jesus came to this earth to die on a cross. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And he has come in order to bring reconciliation to a holy God. That was the theme of their message all through the gospel, all through the, the book of Acts. Over and over and over again. And it is the message that we proclaim today. And that same message is a message that he has entrusted us with. It's a message here that will shock people. You actually believe the resurrection? Yeah. You don't? Why would you not believe when there's so much evidence? Why would you push it aside when it's clear that history shows that this is true? Is because you don't want to see it. You don't want to believe it. We're not the weird ones here. We're the ones that see the facts and believe the facts for what they are and see that behind the facts, the evidence that points to the fact that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God who came to this earth, went to a cross, died, was buried, rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. This is not pie-of-the-sky stuff. This is rooted in truth. This is rooted in evidence. This is rooted in a message that resounded through the early church based on the gospel witness accounts. Are we alarmed when we see that message taking root in people's lives and they embrace the Lord as their Savior? I mean, are, are we shocked when we have shared, you know, the gospel and someone says, "I want, can you tell me more? You just weren't expecting that. But the gospel actually does something in someone. It did in you. Why would you not think that it would do something in someone else? Are we alarmed? Is there a part of us that is terrified by that? I don't mean it in a negative sense, but just in awe of the power of God. So we've seen the woman's love, their alarm, and next I want us to see their fear, the fear that seized them. So how do these women respond to what they have just seen and heard? They went out and fled, verse 8 says, from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's just unpack this a little bit. They were afraid and that is evidenced by two words, trembling, the idea there is shaking or quivering. The next word is astonishment, confusion and terror. So their fear is evidenced by their trembling, their astonishment, and their fear ultimately seized them. The idea there literally means it came upon them, it consumed them, it took hold of them. So this fear just came and, and gripped them. So how do they respond? They fled! Now let's get the impact of what this word means, to flee. It's the word that is used to describe a person who is running as fast as they can to get away from danger. It's not just like, you know, I'm in the grocery store and someone's kind of coming away and I go, oh, okay, I'll get out of your way. (laughs) No, this is with every ounce of energy I have, I'm running as fast as I can because if I stop, I might die. It's a word that is used to describe the kind of flight from an animal who wants to kill you in the arena. It's a word that is used to describe the flight of people who are being pursued by very, very aggressive and eager armies. Flee to the hills, run, drop everything you can, and flee. That's the idea. Same word. They're fleeing. Just run as fast as you can, anywhere you can, without looking back. I know that you've experienced some of that. I know that you've probably done some things in your past. Maybe when you were young people, you did some things that were bad. Maybe you were worried the police were going to come or someone was going to catch you, and you did whatever you did and you took off running. When I was in England, don't tell anyone, okay? When I was in England, we used to play this game called Knockdown Ginger. See, you have no idea what it is. In England, they have milk bottles that are delivered every morning to people's homes. So what we do is we go knock over their bottles and run as fast as we could because we don't want to get caught. I was just a little guy. It's the same idea. I don't want to get caught. Run, run, run. This is what's going on here. This is the idea of this word the shock of what they saw and what they heard drove them to flee the scene. It was a major dose of realism. The Jesus, the one they loved, the one who had died, the one for whom they purchased the spices, the one they wanted to honor and burial is not in the tomb because he is risen. How else did they respond? They said nothing to anyone. This tells us that the news had silenced them. They couldn't speak. There was just too much to contemplate. Now what does it doesn't mean that they didn't tell anyone, because obviously they did eventually tell someone. Of course it's referring to their immediate communication. I mean, the angel tells them. Go tell the disciples, right? Go tell Peter. But they're so consumed with fear, they're so consumed with what they've seen that they are shocked and they're silenced by it. Now hear this. They were ready to deal with the crucifixion. They'd probably seen people crucified before. They were ready to deal with anointing a body for burial. They had likely done that before too. But they were not ready to deal with an empty tomb. That was unexpected. And that was a shock that rocked their world. They were trembling and astonished. Now, friends, hear this. The resurrection claims us. It shakes you to the core and claims you. It asks for everything that you are. It forces you to take a hard look at Jesus revealed and taught by the apostles rather than the placebo Jesus crafted by religion. The resurrection forces each of us in here to say, wait a second, who is this Jesus? Why would he say these things about what's going to happen and why is it that they actually take place? Does that say something about who he is and what he came to do? And the answer is yes! The true Jesus came from his home in heaven to earth. He took upon himself the form of a servant becoming fully man. He trains his disciples concerning the good news which they would not completely understand until after the resurrection. He, uh, the, the true Jesus entered Jerusalem with the Specific purpose of being arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, buried, rising from the tomb and ultimately ascending to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. And he did all that, not to be your role model or primary example, not to be your revolutionary leader, not to teach you how to be liberated from your oppressors, but to become sin for you. That's why. And the resurrection forces us to contemplate that reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says this. For our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what God the Father determined for his Son. This is what the resurrection celebrates. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, he was buried. But the resurrection is that stamp of approval. It is that solidifying reality that what Jesus said would take place did take place. And so what he says in other arenas about us and about what God says for us is true, will be true, will always be true. So the resurrection should shock us to the core. It should leave us suffering from the paralysis of fear. A dreadful, respectful fear of the presence of God. A dreadful and respectful fear of the power of God. Listen, if we were standing there and we were experiencing the events of that day, I don't think we would kind of look at it and say, wow, it would really take a lot to move that stone. And Wow, you know, I wonder what kind of material this tomb is made of. No, we would be shocked. We'd be terrified by what we're experiencing. But maybe we know the story so well that we're not shocked and we're not in fear. And when I use the word fear, I'm not talking about this kind of dreadful fear. I'm talking about this reverential respect and awe and amazement at the presence of God and the power of God that could do this. God has made Jesus both Savior and Lord. He's Lord because He's seated on a throne. He's Savior because He hung on a cross. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the Savior of the world. He's a sovereign King. He's a suffering servant. The other Gospels, in their account of the resurrection, on a note of joy. But Mark leaves the reader hanging. I mean, it's just kind of a strange way to finish your gospel. And if you know anything about Mark's gospel, it's real fast stuff, boom, boom, immediately immediate, immediately, immediately, boom, here's the story, here's this, Here's this, Here's this, here's boom, 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 all the way through. And all of a sudden, here they are. and it ends at verse eight, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Boom, full stop. supposed to do with that? It's not bounce with joy. It's contemplate the resurrection. Contemplate who Jesus is. We must deal with this Jesus. That's what Mark is saying. We must face the facts of his death, burial, and resurrection. Resurrection. We must come face to face with the implications of God's presence and power demonstrated through the resurrection. Friends, has the resurrection turned your life upside down or are you simply looking at it from a distance? I want us to finish with two final contemplating thoughts that flow out of this. Number one. It is right to fear God. Notice the verse. This is what Jesus says. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Now, there's a sense there. It's like it's not a matter of being afraid and cowering in the corner, but it's understanding that the real fear that we should have is the fear of God. Seeing him high and lifted up as he has declared himself to be. Seeing him as that king of kings and lord of lords. Seeing him as that sovereign ruler of the universe who comes and and, and accomplishes his purpose in the affairs of mankind. Who's holy. Fear him rather than fear the person that can kill your body. Secondly, it is a trap to fear men. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. My friends, there is a temptation at, with the subject of the resurrection. You know, we're, we're, you know, I share the gospel, yeah, Jesus loves you. Ah, culture can accept that, right? They can accept the God who loves them because they'll, they'll fill that in with all that they want well, what about the fact that Jesus died for you? Yeah, that's actually a pretty noble thing that someone would give their life for someone else, right? Soldiers do that for each other. People jump in front of cars to protect children. They might get injured. They might even die to save a child. That's a noble thing. So Jesus did that. Okay, that's not a bad thing. Jesus, he was buried, but he rose again. Oh, wait a second. That's an incredible demonstration of the power of God. There is something far unique to what Jesus has done and what others have done. The message of the resurrection to the, to, to the world is not one of, oh, that sounds like pretty good. It's no, you're crazy. And there's a sense in which we, as God's people, might say, well, we want to talk about the fact that Jesus loves you and he died on the cross. But, ah, the resurrection, we'll just kind of keep that aside the side because we might be a little ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of what God is not ashamed of. It is the resurrection that proves, it is the resurrection that fuels the power of God and the message of God and the proclamation of His gospel. And without the resurrection, there is no gospel. So today we celebrate the gospel and yes we can rejoice over it but there is a proper sense in which we can be left with a, a dread of the incredible power of God demonstrated by the resurrection that same God though whom we fear is the God who draws us to himself and says come be a part of my family come be a part of my kingdom come and experience life Everlasting. Life abundant. Life that will satisfy. Fear Him. Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear Him who can kill the soul. Lord, help us today. As we contemplate further the implications of your resurrection. Lord, it is amazing to me that you would choose to use these ladies as the key witnesses. And Lord, we find ourselves also seemingly panicked, unable, and yet with a love for you. And we ask, Lord, that we would embrace the power that we have in the message of the gospel, Lord, as, as, as your power that goes through proclaiming that gospel to other people. That, Lord, you bring life where there is death. You bring sight where there is blindness. Lord, you bring uh, satisfaction where there is hunger. You bring water where there is thirst. Lord, you bring life where there is death. And it's all because of you. And we are blessed to be the recipients of that. We're blessed to have that message into proclaim it. So Lord, help us today to, to once again be in awe of your power, of your presence, of your purposes, of your sovereignty. And Lord, may we worship you because you are risen. And you are risen indeed. Your precious name.